I've tried many times to imagine what it must have been like to have stand among those newly freed slaves of Israel, the foot of Mount Sinai, feel the earth tremble beneath my feet as a voice unlike any that I had ever heard echoed from the fire at the top of the mountain. Less than two months earlier, they had seen the mightiest nation on earth brought to its knees by a series of supernatural events that could only have been by the hand of God. That same God had created a dry pathway through the Red Sea with walls of water on either side, and then had used those same walls of water to deliver the final blow to the mighty Egyptian army, the people of Israel that stood on the seashore and seen the shattered chariots and the bodies of the horses and the soldiers washing up and told they would never see them again. They just spent six weeks after that walking through a barren waterless desert where that same God had miraculously provided them with food and water for themselves and their animals. He'd led them to this mountain with a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. And three days earlier, he had instructed Moses to tell them that they needed to bathe, to refrain from normal marital relations, and to be prepared to leave their tents with their families and assemble at the feet of the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, where they would actually meet this amazing God. I wonder what must have been in their minds as they that morning gathered their families around them and tremulously followed Moses out toward that mountain from the camp. Would their God look like the gods of the Egyptians that they had seen for all of their lives? What would this God require of them? We're told the mountain quaked greatly and was covered with fire, smoke, lightning, thunder, and there was a terrifying blast of a trumpet growing louder and louder. They'd been warned that while the cloud was on top of the mountain, no one was to touch the surface at all, that even if an animal broke through and touched it, that they were not to go after it, but instead the archers were to kill it where it stood. And as the trumpet blast grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and from the cloud on top of the mountain, a voice unlike anything any had ever heard thundered in response. It wasn't just a voice you heard with your ears. It was a voice you felt in your bones as it rattled you. It was a voice that would echo in your memory for the rest of your days. And as you stood there, your heart pounding, your eyes wide and unblinking, your breaths coming quickly and in short gasps, that voice spoke to you. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh, your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, 
nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which Yahweh, your God, is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The account then tells us that the people were so frightened, they went to Moses and said, Moses, you speak to us, we will do whatever this God says, but you speak to us, we don't want to hear him anymore. Yet those words, those 10 commandments as we call them, or the 10 words as they are often referred to by the Jewish people, have still resonated and echoed down across the centuries since they were first codified in that covenant. Many have understood that those 10 commands, ultimately written on two tables of stone by the finger of God, were a profound collection of instructions with no true parallels in the ancient or even the modern world. Some have likened them to the Code of Hammurabi, who was a Babylonian king who reigned basically halfway between the time of Abraham and Moses. But the differences are massive. For one simple thing, Hammurabi had 282 laws. Moses had 10. It's generally stated that the first tablet probably contained the first four commandments, which primarily address how to love God and the final six commandments on the second tablet focus on how to love your neighbor as yourself. Yet even that division is not strictly true. After all, the Sabbath command we just read also told us how to treat our children, our servants, and even the strangers who are not a part of our household or even a part of Israel. The last six commandments not only tell us how God expects us to treat our neighbors, they are, in fact, the foundation stones for any functioning civilization. No civilization of man can long endure if they set aside any of those commands. It would be impossible to sustain a functioning society where those fundamental principles are ignored or violated. In examining those last six commandments, there likewise seems to be a logical progression with them from one to the next. Having a proper respect and yieldedness to one's parents is a reflection of the love and respect we give to our ultimate parent, to God. In addition, it gives a foundation for the love and respect that we need to show every other person who becomes a part of our lives. If we cannot love and respect the people who gave us life in the first place, it's going to be difficult to have a constructive relationship with anyone else. And in addition, the command not only teaches us how we are to deal with our own parents, it also lays the foundation for what we need to teach our children. It would be impossible to have a positive relationship with our neighbor unless we each knew the other was committed to ensuring our safety and survival. So the command that enjoins us not to commit murder makes perfect sense. If neighbors fear one another, then obviously peace and a positive relationship are simply not possible. The most intimate, vulnerable, and important relationship each of us can have is the first human relationship God created, the relationship between a husband and a wife. Our mate is our most intimate neighbor and should have 
guarantees of safety that exceed those to anyone else. The command that tells us that we must be faithful to the covenant commandments and promises that we made at marriage is essential to ensure the safety and security of the family. And since the family is essential for society to survive, then the command against adultery is likewise essential for society to survive, which I suppose as we see our world today should give us cause to be concerned. Likewise, how could we have a constructive relationship with our neighbor unless we were each committed to respecting the rights of one another to own property, to use it, without fearing it would be unjustly seized by someone else. So the Eighth Commandment, which forbids stealing my neighbor's property, likewise makes sense. The Ninth Commandment introduces a subtle change in the direction of these laws. All of the previous commandments have to do with our actions and relating to one another. In one sense, this one is similar, but it introduces something that we could do even without having direct contact with the neighbor. This is a command that requires us to control our speech. It gives no latitude in allowing us to justify false words. It does not allow for gossip, what's called white lies, or any other form of speaking that gives an untrue impression of our neighbor. It not only tells my neighbor that I will not harm him or his family or his possessions, it tells him I will not say untrue things about him and bring harm to him even when he's not there to hear it. But the most profound change in approach is introduced through the Tenth Commandment. In this commandment, we are told that we must not simply control our motion, or excuse me, our actions and our words. We have to control our thoughts. Coveting may produce sinful actions, but this commandment requires us to control our thoughts prior to any actions taking place. No ancient code even began to consider such a requirement. For that matter, neither does any modern code. Humans almost always take umbrage at the idea that someone else would think they could control what we think, that someone else could tell us what we can think and what we must not think. And yet God, your God, who brought you out of the land of spiritual Egypt, out of the house of bondage to sin, has placed upon you and upon me the requirement to think in a certain way about the material elements of our day-to-day -day world. How should the 10th commandment impact my life? How often do you examine your life for the sin of covetousness? If you're like me, I tend to be more concerned about other manifestations of sin. I know intellectually that coveting is a sin, and I certainly wouldn't want to try to somehow justify it. But as I look at the world around me, coveting can seem kind of like a lower priority concern. In the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus Christ talked about those who would break the least of his commandments and teach men so. If I were called upon to rank the Ten Commandments, I would probably rank coveting as the least. But that's obviously not what Jesus Christ was talking about. Including coveting among the ten fundamental principles of eternal law makes it clear that there is nothing minor about it. We all have to view it as a serious matter. And as Scripture will show as we go further today, it has the power to keep a person from receiving the gift of eternal life that God wants to give us. Now, at this point, I would like to add 
that the Life, Hope, and Truth website contains some excellent information on the subject if you'd like to consider it further. You can begin with a short video by Mr. Kylo about the Tenth Commandment, and you will find another very good article written by the late Todd Carey about it. And I also found, as I was researching it, these people have produced a booklet too. God's Ten Commandments, still relevant today. It's got some great information in it about the Tenth Commandment. Why is coveting such a big deal? Romans 7, in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul said he wouldn't have even known it was a sin if it weren't in the Ten Commandments. Why would something that takes place in the privacy of my own mind be of any concern to anyone else? Well, in order to begin answering that question and some of the others that we have, let's begin by simply defining the terms. Now, a modern dictionary can be helpful, but I hope we realize that basically dictionaries tell us how words are used. They don't actually tell us how it's used in a specific case. Yesterday, there were a group of us talking, and the word lodge came up, and one of the members, one of the individuals who was there, for whom English is a second language, wasn't really sure about the meaning of the word, so we started talking about it, and we came up with a whole list of definitions about what the word lodge means. If you were to go to the dictionary and look up the word lodge, you would see all of those different definitions. That would be accurate. That tells you how they're used. But it doesn't tell you how it's used in this case. And likewise, if we look up covet, we would find a variety of definitions. It wouldn't necessarily tell us exactly what we wanted to know. So while the modern dictionary may be helpful, it's probably more helpful if we turn back to some of those original sources as these scriptures were written. The manifestations of covetousness can show up in a variety of different ways in different cultures, even today. But the fundamental way of thinking is the same across the ages. Covetousness is an issue that was addressed in both the Old and the New Testament. In Hebrew, the word is hamat. Where's Dr. Levy? I gotta make sure I'm okay. All right, come on, we're close enough, good. I'm getting my down a whole lot better than I used to, come on. Uh, it means to desire earnestly, to long after, or to covet. Now you may notice something in that. Some of the meanings are positive. The word itself is morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with desiring right things in the right way. Nothing wrong with that at all. God tells us that's a perfectly proper thing to do. We should desire good things. Nothing wrong at all. But the Word tells us that it can mean something that's good or something that's not. We have the same in English. Say, for example, we look at the word pride. We know that pride can mean a kind of an arrogant self-confidence. But we also know that there are uses of the word pride that are perfectly appropriate. Pride of accomplishment. When we read the discussion or at the beginning of the book of Genesis, as God describes the first week of uh, recreation, it tells us that God looked at everything and behold, he invites us to look at it through his eyes, everything is very good. There is a pride of accomplishment, but God's not guilty of arrogance. So the word pride can be taken more than one way. Likewise, chomad. We move to the Greek, the word that's used there most commonly this pleonexia, if you want that one, it's P-L-E-O-N-E-X-I-A, pleonexia. It generally doesn't have a positive meaning to it. Here are some of the definitions that are given. First one from a Lovenite commentary or a lexicon. It says, a strong desire to acquire more and more. That's an interesting definition. A desire to acquire more and more material possessions, or to possess more than other people have, all irrespective of need, greed, or avarice. From the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, it says, having more, wanting more, outdoing others, for forging ahead of others, uh, for, excuse me, forging ahead at others' expense, taking advantage. William Barclay, in his New Testament words book, gives probably the biggest and clearest definition as he describes it. 
He says, in classical Greek, it means an arrogant greediness, the spirit which tries to take advantage of its fellow man, the love of possessing. It's not particularly focused on a particular thing. It's just, I want to have. And no matter what I have, I want more. He goes on to say, aiming always at getting more, the unlawful desire for things which belong to another. And then he makes an interesting observation, the opposite of generosity. Sometimes we understand things best by examining the opposite. This is the opposite of generosity. The sin of the man who, ele- who evaluates life in material terms. Barclay goes on, the essence is the desire to have what is forbidden, the desire to take what should not be taken, the giving of rein to appetites and desires which are against the laws of God and man. And finally, he says this, Pleonexia is the sin of the man who thinks his desires and appetites and lusts are the most important thing in the world, and he sees others as things to be exploited. Of course, there are other words that describe the various manifestations of covetousness, words like greed or lust or desire, and a full study of covetousness in Scripture would lead us to look up those words as well. Though we may not think much about it, the various forms of this sin appear in scores of passages in Scripture. Trying to look up as many as possible, share them today would be impossible for us because they're just too many. But I hope it does, the message today does encourage you to consider and perhaps look at some of those as it caused me to look at some of those in preparing this message. Scripture contains a number of examples of covetousness that uh, probably uh, will come to your mind. Examples that show us not only people coveting, but what covetousness produces. Probably one of the first ones that might come to mind for many would be the example of David and Bathsheba, where David obviously coveted another man's wife. You may think of the example of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, trying to purchase the office of apostle. Or some of you might even think of the example beginning in 1 Kings 21 of the wicked Israelite king Ahab, who coveted the vineyard of a righteous man named Naboth. Coveted it so much that he and his infamous wife Jezebel succeeded in having Naboth stoned so that they could take what he had. Now, the story doesn't end there, but you may remember that example. For that matter, we could legitimately begin with considering Adam and Eve who coveted the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when the fruit of the tree of life was so accessible to them. But that's not actually the first scriptural example of covetousness. There's one that's even earlier. So please turn back to Isaiah 14 and we'll see a passage that is enlightening about this sin of covetousness. As we begin in Isaiah 14, verse 12, he says, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And then it gives us an explanation of what took place. For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, stars being symbolic of angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest part depths of the pit. We see that before man ever existed, covetousness played a role in Satan's rebellion to God. It was certainly not the only factor involved, but it clearly led to a great number of angels abandoning their God-ordained roles and coming to believe that they could overthrow the God who created them and have things their way. 
If covetousness can distort the thinking of a divinely created spirit being, what could it do to me? What could that influence do to me? One of the facets that we need to recognize when we consider covetousness is that coveting is, in many ways, what we could call a gateway sin. It's a problem all by itself, but it opens the pathway to a whole variety of other sins as well. Jesus made that principle clear when he said in the Sermon on the Mount that lusting, which takes place entirely in the mind, leads to adultery. He said anger that's inappropriate toward a neighbor or toward a brother leads to murder. The scripture also shows us concerning this being who became the great enemy of God and of us, in him coveting led to pride, which led to deception, which led to open rebellion, which led to eternal failure. As we're going to see as we go a little bit further, covetousness can be a gateway to sins that we've never imagined. To be able to address covetousness, we need to be able to recognize how it manifests itself in the world around us. This is, after all, Satan's world. So his mindset permeates every form of human society. In looking for material for this message, I came across an interesting website. Not particularly recommending it, but I do, in the sense of transparency, need to at least mention it. It is called myjewishlearning.com. It had a fascinating article, at least I found it fascinating, about one of the most obvious manifestations of covetousness in our world today. Let me quote. If there were a multi-billion dollar industry in our society whose sole purpose was to get you to murder, commit adultery, steal, or perjure yourself, we might wonder about its legitimacy. These transgressions are forbidden by commandments six, seven, eight, and nine of the Ten Commandments. Yet regarding the next one on the list, number 10, there is just such an industry, the advertising industry. It is designed to get you to want things you don't have, to covet. Advertising deals in dissatisfaction. We buy in order to cure the blemishes that ads mercilessly invent. The list of our maladies is endless, from body odors to vehicular insufficiency. Now, not all advertising fits into that category, I'm sure. Advertisers always have a target audience. Now, I don't watch very much television, but when I have the opportunity, I like to sit down in the evening and watch the evening news and Jeopardy. Understand that the evening news and Jeopardy are old people programs. <laughs> Young people don't watch the news, and they certainly don't watch Jeopardy. At least not many do. So the ads that I see while I'm watching that portion of television have a target audience that's a little older. So I get opportunity to learn about laxatives and hearing aids and dental repairs and pharmaceuticals for every degenerative disease known to man. At other times when the younger viewers are watching, the ads are a little bit different. They have more disposable income, and so the ads tend to be a little more what we were just talking about. A number of you probably have read, be nice if all did, but a number of you have probably read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography, and you may well remember that a part of his training, and he felt it was very important for him as time went by, and I think we would agree, but a part of his training early on was writing advertising. And he gives examples of some of the ads that he wrote. But if you look at those examples, you see they are very, very different than the ads that we see or hear today. The article continues by explaining this. Social historians note a change in American advertising after World War I. 
from conveying product information to manufacturing desire. The public, business people feared, was too frugal. To rev up the economy, products were associated with images, glamour, personal identity. Marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating needs. 30 years later, the post-World War II boom gave us planned obsolescence, whose most recent incarnation is the need for continual upgrading of our electronic gadgets. We can see there was a dramatic change. Now, we may logically recognize coveting when it shows up in advertising. You need this, you want this, look at this wonderful car. If you purchase this car, you will drive through the night in a four-wheeled palace. And when you arrive, you simply pitch your keys to the valet while you take your glamorous partner up into the nightclub. Sound like your life? I don't find that when I get out of our Prius. Just doesn't seem to work that way. But the ads promise us so much that we don't have. So many wonderful things. They can't deliver, but that's very common. Coveting isn't just about acquiring things. People covet in many ways, and our world encourages many different forms of coveting. Sexual lust is generally a form of coveting, and I think we would all recognize that advertising and entertainment today are saturated with this over-sexuality. I haven't done it this year, but I showed the students in the past um, a, just a screenshot from my computer. I enjoy going to a couple of sites that have daily newspaper cartoons. Um, so I, I go to those and I see what's there. And I have a screenshot I took of a cartoon. It's uh, Mother Goose and Grimm, okay? Many of you are familiar with that. Somebody explain it to Mr. Burnett. But Mother Goose and Grimm, um, it's just a normal, I mean, it's a pretty safe cartoon, okay? But the screenshot shows the ad beside it, Ashley Madison. Now, if you're not familiar with Ashley Madison, it's a website that was created so that married people can connect with other married people to have affairs. That's what's there. I'm looking at Mother Goose and Grimm, and yet here, it's what I find thrown in my face in that environment. It's everywhere. And of course, many times we are all exposed to it. Sometimes it's embarrassing to drive down the highway and see the billboards. Sometimes just picking up a magazine or watching our television. We are assaulted with this particular form of coveting. Likewise, if we listen to what's going on today, we find that politics it's no longer about presenting a vision for a better world, but now there is a constant emphasis on gaining power for one party or the other. Most of the, uh, the emphasis in the elections that are going to be coming up later this year is focused on which party is going to have the power when the elections are over. Not a vision for a better world, Give us the power, we'll stop the other guys. What a great vision. The coveting power, desiring power, which is as old as Satan coveting the power of God, has become an acceptable standard for choosing world leaders. Covetousness is everywhere. When you consider the definitions of covetous, covetousness that we read, Probably one of the clearest passages describing the effects of this sin is a very familiar passage at the beginning of first, oh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just quickly note it without going through a great deal of detail. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, the Apostle Paul in this very last epistle that he wrote to his, uh, in a sense, adopted son Timothy. But know this, that in the last days perilous, difficult times will come. 
for, and here he gives us the reason, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. He describes coveting in two different terms, coveting money and the power that it brings, and coveting the power to do whatever you want to do. So he goes on and lists boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without control, self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. We've all read those words many times, and the bottom line is covetousness. While the prophet Jeremiah certainly wrote for the times he was in surrounding the Babylonian captivity of Judah, there's also the possibility of seeing some duality in many of his words. Notice just one brief verse, Jeremiah 8 verse 10. Jeremiah 8 verse 10. Jeremiah was inspired to write, therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Note that as Jeremiah describes this, he doesn't just say they're guilty of covetousness, he says they're given to it. Covetousness is not just a contributing factor, it is the driving force of their lives. Now, no one would openly acknowledge that, but God sees beyond human acknowledgments. Again, just one verse, 2 Peter 2, verse 14. As Peter describes the end time as well, he describes these people and he says in 2 Peter 2 verse 14, having eyes full of adultery or of an adulteress as it can be translated, and they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. Another commentary says they are experts in greed and are accursed children. And what's the end result? What's the end result of allowing a covetous spirit in a person's life? After a description of the deceptive promises given by those who have chosen a way contrary to God in Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon concludes his description with these words. Proverbs 1, verse 19. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. It saps the life away. A few pages further on in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon once again addresses the subject. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. He says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. In other words, it's, it's not going to produce something good. It's not going to produce something substantial. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? And then they're gone. Paul also makes it clear that the danger is not just for those who don't know God today. It would be easy for us to look at this and say, yes, that's a really covetous world out there. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 was inspired to tell believers, because remember, 1 Corinthians is written to believers. It's not written to the world. It's written to you and to me. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the only way into the kingdom of God, to inherit it. Be co-heirs with Jesus Christ, as Paul says. 
He goes on to say here in verse 9, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You and I, I would hope, would recognize the seriousness of this. Many people would say covetousness is going to keep you from the kingdom of God. Yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, it does. Now, let me clarify that I did not choose this subject because I felt this congregation or this organization had some unique difficulty with covetousness. I chose it because I really hadn't given much consideration to covetousness in my own life. And yet scripture makes it clear that it's important to God. Do I have a problem with covetousness? Do you? How would we recognize covetousness in ourselves? Because after all, in our society, it's the norm. So everybody thinks and acts. So how would I recognize it? I can convince myself that I have the right focus in my life. But there's an old saying that reveals something much more. Actions speak louder than words. And that's, just not, that's not just telling me to look at other people's actions. I have to look at my own. What do my actions reveal about my values? In Proverbs 23, I realize I've got you turning to a lot more scriptures than usual, but I think it's important. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. In other words, think about this and make some limits in your life. Verse 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. They're not going to last. Further, Jesus Christ, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, gives us a principle which I know we have all read many times. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. You and I recognize that thieves can take many forms today. One of them is called inflation. It's a thief. It takes away the things that you've worked toward. And of course, today we have all kinds of other ways that thieves can take those things that we store up. Now, Jesus Christ's principle here that he's talking about was primarily telling us don't rely on physical things for your security because they're not going to be reliable. Only God can bring you through. But he continues on, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He gives us a powerful principle to evaluate our own lives. Where's my heart? Where is, what is, what is it that I'm focused upon? Because whatever my treasure is, is where my heart is going to be. Do I have trouble finding time to pray, to study, to do those things that I should do in that way? Do I go from week to week perhaps and realize when the Sabbath comes, oh, I must have forgotten my Bible at church because I haven't opened it all week. If so, there's a lesson there. We don't ask you to come down and give true confessions. We didn't set up the mic for that reason. So that's not what we're saying. But don't I have a responsibility to evaluate myself? What do I spend my time on? Do I spend my time on entertainment? Entertainment has a role in life. It's not an evil thing. Do I spend my time on my work? Okay, work has a legitimate role in life as well. Where am I spending my time? Because that tells me where my treasure is and where my heart is. 
As we noted earlier, this commandment has to do with how we think. No one else has the ability to know how I think, but God does. And he also tells us in his word, Psalm 139, if you want to be turning there, he tells us in his word that he's willing to help me see those things that I may have trouble seeing about myself. Things that I maybe don't, well, on one level at least want to see. I want to see it, but I don't want to see it. He says in Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties, the things that I worry about, the things that consume my thoughts, my cares, my concerns. And verse 24, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David asked God, help me to see. That seems like a good way to begin recognizing covetousness in my own life. I go to God and I ask him if it's there. Help me to see it. Help me to recognize what I need to see. So what happens if I find it? What happens if in the course of this self-examination, I come to the conclusion that I've allowed the sin of covetousness to begin to take a role in my life? How do I address that? How do I root that out? Well, in the remainder of the time, I want to give you four quick steps. They're relatively easy to do. There are other steps you can take. I'm hoping you can remember four. I'll be doing good to remember four. So I'm not giving you seven or 12, though they are magical numbers. Uh, no, uh, I'll just look at four, and I hope they will be helpful. My first step is that I must develop an increased awareness of covetousness and the appeals to covetousness that are all around me. I need to see the danger before I can recognize and take steps to avoid it. Jesus even warned his disciples of the danger of the wrong perspective. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What a powerful statement to help me get a perspective on my life. Real abundance doesn't depend upon the things I possess. I have to have a different set of values. But he does tell me I need to take heed. In other words, it's not something that's just going to happen to me. It's not something that I'm just going to be driving down the road and suddenly say, oh, that's covetousness. Probably not going to happen that way. I'm going to have to look for it. I'm going to have to exercise the desire to see where this is. Take heed. That's how I came up with the title of the sermon, Taking Heed to Covetousness. Paul further in 1 Timothy chapter 6 gives us a perspective on one facet of this covetousness, the way it can come into our lives and the many manifestations that it can have. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, Paul says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's a basis for me to evaluate my life. Godliness plus contentment. How much more do I need? How much more does a human being really need besides knowing that you are in a right relationship with God and you are content? Verse 7, he says, for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. But at least nothing material. We do have character which uh, will be carried out. Having food and clothing, now again, I have to explain, um, in Scripture, in the New Testament, when you read clothing, uh, clothing is a legitimate translation, but it generally includes the concept of uh, lodging, housing, uh, a place to live as well, so that's, that's all embodied there. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Okay, he just told me about contentment, now he tells me, tells me what brings it, 
I have food, I have shelter, so I can be content with that. But he says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's a graphic description that Paul gives. For he says in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wow, we're being told here that there are converted Christians who have made this mistake. In verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Again, none of those things are things that simply come into our lives because we wish for them. There is a pursuit involved. There is an effort on my part to bring those things into my life. Now, under this very first point about seeking to develop an increased awareness of covetousness and those things which encourage me to covet, I would refer you to an article by Dr. Tom Kirkpatrick in the July-August issue of Discern, an article about financial management. And he has some excellent information in there that relates directly to the concept of coveting and why we find ourselves sometimes in debt. We need to understand that. So I would recommend that very highly. My second step is a simple one. I must consciously choose to be more thankful. First to God, and then to anyone else who brings blessing into my life. When I'm thankful for what I have, what I've received, and I recognize that I've already received more than I deserve, it can help me from having an inordinate desire for what I don't yet have. I'm thankful. But please understand, we cannot just feel thankful. We need to express it. We need to openly express our appreciation. Is it possible to thank God too much? I really don't think so. Is it possible to thank a human being too much? Well, maybe it's possible, but I don't think most of us are in danger of that right now. There are many scriptures to back this up, but since Mr. Horchak recently gave an excellent message on the importance of being thankful, I'm not going to try to rehash those here. Step number three is to take the time to learn from the experience of those who have gone before. It teaches us a great deal about covetousness and about generosity, the opposite of it. There are numerous examples in the world around us. You can easily go online and do a search about lottery winners. One study that I found said that 70% of those who win lotteries go broke within seven years. One of the searches that you might find that comes up is simply called the curse of the lottery. And how many people who think that, oh, if I could just win that, I'd be great. Nope, doesn't work that way. But of course, we really don't need the internet to study some of the most important examples. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, passage that we've all read many, many times, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, and talking about the story of Israel, the fact that they were God's chosen people and yet failed in their calling. When we come to verse 6, he makes a statement that seems very appropriate for us here. He said, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Part of the lesson we're supposed to learn from the story of Israel is don't covet. Coveting doesn't ever produce a good result. My fourth and final step that I will suggest is this. Learn to be a responsible but generous giver. We all remember the core principle that we were taught many years ago, that there are two ways of life, 
a give way and a get way. One of those ways is God's way, and the other way is not. In Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21 and verse 25, we read, the desire of the lazy man kills him, for his, hand, his hands refuse to labor. Now that tells us something about coveting, but notice the next verse, verse 26. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The contrast between the lazy man who covets and the righteous man is the righteous man gives generously. Not irresponsibly, not foolishly, but he gives what he's able to give. The greatest protection a Christian has from any sin, including covetousness, is a consistent determination to live righteously in every situation. Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs 11 reminds me of something every time I see it. Proverbs 11 verse 6, Proverbs 11 verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. That's a powerful verse all by itself, but it frankly reminds me of an elderly lady my wife and I knew many years ago. She was in her 80s, 40 plus years ago, so I'm relatively sure she's gone now, but um, a very sweet widow that we knew. I will call her Mrs. B. I'll just leave it at that. We went to visit Mrs. B one day, and uh, she said, oh, I, I really feel badly. I'm glad you're here. I, I need some advice. She said, yesterday I went to the bank, and uh, uh, as I was coming out, there was um, a lady there, and she was holding an envelope. And she said, uh, she spoke to me. She said, I, I, I don't know what to do. I've, I found this envelope, and it contains $2,000. There's no name on it. There's nothing. It's just lying here on the sidewalk. I don't know what to do. And Mrs. B said, I don't know what to do either. And so the lady talked to her a little bit more, and she said, look, I'm, I have a friend that works in the bank. Let me go inside and ask them if maybe they'll help me. Can, can you wait for me? Well, okay. So she goes inside, comes back out a few minutes later. She says, oh, my friend was so helpful. He said that if I will just leave this here at the bank, um, they will hold it for 24 hours. But if nobody claims it in that much time, can come back tomorrow. And he, now he said, we're, we're going to have to leave maybe a $100 deposit on this, but said, um, if, if we will leave that and, and we can come back tomorrow, then uh, we can have it all. But she said, I don't have $100. And said, if you, do, do you? Well, I, the lady's just come out of the bank. Yeah. She's a widow probably had an insurance policy left over from her husband and so on. Well, yeah, I, I have some money. She said, I'll tell you what. If you, actually it wasn't 100, it was $1,000 is what it was. She said, okay, if, if you will give me the $1,000, I'll take it back inside. We'll leave it there and you can meet me here tomorrow and I'll split this with you. And you'll not only get your 1000 back, but you'll get another 1000 on top of it. Mrs. B thought about it for a second. And she said, it just doesn't sound right. I'm not interested. And she walked away. And the next day when we saw her, she says, I feel so badly this lady needed help and I didn't help her. I said, Mrs. B, I was just watching the news last night. This is what's, it's a con game. It's called a pigeon drop. They look for people like you. If you had shown up, you would never see her again. Now, Mrs. B didn't know that. She didn't know what was going on. She was completely innocent to it. But Mrs. B wanted to be a righteous person. And she said, that doesn't sound right to me. So she was delivered instead of being caught up in her lust, as so many other people were. In a world where covetousness is rampant, 
where it is encouraged, where it's not even seen as a problem, we cannot avoid this sin by simply not thinking about it. We have to make a determined, conscious effort with God's help to recognize it and eliminate it from our lives.